Hey guys, welcome back to Vetsplanation Staff Edition. I've also considered calling this like a, what's it called, a podcast, P-A-W, like pa, we'll see. Anyways, right now it's still Staff Edition because nobody has given me a better answer on what we should call it, but tell me if you like just me calling it a podcast. All right, so we are going to be talking about Kiribra because I've actually seen a lot of these over the last couple of weeks. We've seen them in multiple animals. So let's talk about our little Kiribra. We're going to be talking about like the life cycle of it, how we identify them, different types of infestations of them, treatment, things, and prevention, things like that. All right, so Kiribra are also known as botflies. They are found across most of North America and in other places as well. But they strike mostly during the summer, like end of summer, beginning of fall months. So this is usually something very innocent that our dogs and cats encounter. They're called opportunistic parasites, meaning that was not the host that Kiribara fly wanted to get infested. They wanted a different animal to get infested. So with Kiribara, usually they want to infest rabbits and rodents, and that just happens to be that dogs and cats get it instead, but that's not what they want. The Kiribara fly specifically wants a rabbit or a rodent because of the fact that if a Kiribara fly lays its eggs, it goes through the rabbit, it will then be able to become another Kiribara fly. So our fly wants to make more flies, right? But if it goes through a dog or a cat, it's a very unlikely that larva will become a fly. So it does not want dogs and cats to get it. They just unfortunately happen to come by and go into the dog and cat. We're going to talk about the life cycle now so you can understand this a little bit better. Like I said, it's very specific. These flies usually like to infest lagomorphs. Does anybody know what a lagomorph is? Instead, if not, we're going to learn a new word. Lagomorphs are rabbits. Flies usually like to attack the host, like I said, rabbits and rodents. So it's very specific to them. That means that they prefer to lay their eggs near a rabbit's burrow or its nest, and then will become later that fly. That actual Kiribara fly only lives for a short period of time, just a couple of weeks. After that fly lays its eggs near an animal's burrow or its nest, the heat from that potential host body, or basically the heat of the rabbit like sitting on the nest, stimulates the eggs to hatch into larva. So it goes from an adult to eggs, to larva, to pupating, to a fly. That bot fly may even leave eggs down the path that a rabbit would normally take or where stones and vegetation are around where it would normally eat. The goal of that fly is to go anywhere where a rabbit or a rodent might potentially go. But then our animals, our dogs and cats, come through the path where those eggs are, and then the eggs feel the heat from that animal's body, and then they hatch. They hatch very quickly. Now that the egg hatches, it's turned into something called a larvae. That larvae then enters the body, usually through the nose or the mouth or an open wound from like the dog and cat sniffing or from grooming itself. And then it can also even go into the anus or the vulva. And then those larvae move to the skin. This is called migrating. And each type of fly prefers a different location based on their target species. So like rabbits, they specifically like to go to places like the head and the body. Like there's lots of different places that each type of fly prefers to go to. When the larva reaches the skin, it makes a little hole in it. 
and that's called the breathing pore. After about 30 days of just hanging out in the skin, the larva is going to like wiggle out of the skin and look to land into the soil. And then that's when they pupate and then they become a fly. Real quick, if anybody's listening to just the audio of this, you may want to check out the video on YouTube of this because I'm going to actually have like pictures and stuff of it. All right. So how are we going to identify if the pet has been invaded by a cuterebra? So there's actually three forms of this disease. One's called the funicular myosis. That basically means that it goes to the skin. There's the neurological and there's the respiratory. So we're going to go into each one of these. With the cutaneous one or the skin one, you might notice a small hole that's sometimes filled with like pus and it usually has a bunch of hair matted around it. That's where the little bot fly trying to keep safe so that the dog doesn't get to it or the cat doesn't chew it open or anything. Cats will often excessively groom these areas and we assume that's because of some sort of pain. In dogs and cats, these are normally found around the head and the neck and the back. It can even go to places like the brain and the nasal passages and the throat. So the throat is called the pharynx and even the eyelids. Ugh. These are actually commonly misdiagnosed because they look like an abscess or maybe like a foreign body if the hair isn't shaved to look around the wound. And this most commonly happens, like I said, in the summer and early fall. So hence why we're doing this now, since we're seeing so many of them, usually between July to September. In areas that are warmer, though, these can be year-round, like in Florida and Southern California, for example. And outdoor cats, this can also be problematic because of CNS signs. So I talked about there's cutaneous signs. So that's the one where it goes to the skin. There's neurological signs. So when they go to the neurological system, that's the CNS signs. CNS stands for central nervous system, or basically anything that involves your brain and your nerves. Uh, we usually start with the cat like actually violently sneezing for a couple of weeks, typically about two to three weeks. And then it will eventually just move or migrate into the brain. That's when we start seeing these CNS signs. So it will be things like the cat being really depressed, lethargic, meaning they don't really want to move. They may have an abnormally high or abnormally low body temperature. They might seem blind. They could have a head tilt. They could be head pressing. So like literally pushing their head into a wall and they can have seizures. This is not a great one for our, it mostly affects cats. It can affect dogs as well, but it's usually not very good when we get to CNS signs. We also talked about the respiratory one. So we had skin, we have neurological, and now we have respiratory. So respiratory usually means that they're going to be sneezing quite a lot for a couple of weeks. It can even be four months. So it can even be like four to six weeks since getting that cuterebra that they're just sneezing over and over again. It can also affect things like in their larynx or your soft palate. So your soft palate is if you put your tongue at the roof of your mouth and then push it back, you're going to feel something soft. That's the soft palate. It can go into there and go into the larynx, which is the throat. And you'll see just like these swellings in those areas. And then it can also go into things like the diaphragm is super important because that's what helps you breathe. It's the muscle that helps you breathe. So if you now have these holes and openings in it, they're going to have really bad respiratory signs and get to the fact that they can't even breathe. So it can be really bad. They can also migrate then from respiratory into neurological as well. 
Now, there are some interesting ones. So there is like Yorkies. They do have a really high, like a higher rate of infestation over other dogs. We don't know why, but I don't know if anybody remembers the Yorkie that was in the clinic for days afterwards. She had gone home finally and then came back and she ended up having five or six cuterebra in her skin that was later found when the pet went home. I think she came back the next day, if I remember correctly, and she had all of these holes with cuterebra in them. They said that the pet had gotten the cuterebra here in the hospital, but after listening to the podcast, like, do you think that is possible? It's most likely not. It was weeks beforehand, months beforehand that the dog had gotten it. But it causes Yorkies to have this huge systemic inflammatory response, meaning their body starts to almost shut down because of it. So that most likely led to this dog having things like the pyometra and getting really sick afterwards and not being able to hold her blood sugar because she had this cuterebra infestation that we didn't realize. They can also go into things like DIC. It's called disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. That's super complicated. I will talk about that in another podcast. It's just a bad thing. We also say that it should actually be called death is coming because it's just really bad. So for us to diagnose cuterebra under the skin, super easy. Shave the hair, look for the opening. Sometimes it's not quite an opening yet because it hasn't penetrated through that hole. So it might look like it's an abscess. Like I said, and antibiotics are just started, but then we suddenly see later that there's this hole that's there. And then we might also want to like think it's an abscess and then poke it with a scalpel. And if we do that, we poke it and then burst the cuterebra. So also not fantastic, but we found out that it's cuterebra. In order to tell if it's something like in the brain or the nose or the pharynx or things like that, we would actually need a CT scan or an MRI. That's going to be what helps us try to determine if there's something that's gone through into the brain. Those can be really hard, though, because the pet is seizing over and over. You, know, you have to get the seizures under control and then do a CT on them. So I'm just going to summarize all of that in like our more technical terms. So subcutaneous means that it's under the skin. That's the most common one. That's where we see the hole that looks like a volcano with a head sticking out. There's the neurological form where the larva can migrate to the brain, and this can cause the pet to be seizing and what we call status epilepticus, where there's no medication that can stop those seizures. They just seize over and over again. They can alternatively become blind or have head pressing, vocalizing, circling, being depressed. This is usually very progressive, like very rapid in progression and very fatal. If they do recover from it, most of the time we'll have longer lasting signs, like they'll have circling, seizures occasionally, head pressing sometimes. But there are some that have fully recovered from this. We first see some sort of sneezing, like I said, one to two weeks beforehand, but it can be up to four to 10 weeks after the sneezing has occurred. This is really confusing because when it's a dog, we also think that this could be distemper. So those are the signs for distemper. It starts with sneezing, then GI signs like vomiting, and then seizures. In respiratory disease, they'll look like an upper respiratory tract infection at first. Or they'll have like unilateral, so one side of the face will be swollen, especially over the nose. They may have bloody nasal discharge, or they could have swelling of things like the soft palate or the pharynx, the throat, like we said. And this respiratory one can lead to neurological signs as well. Right, let's talk about treatment now. So 
really it's about the removal process. It's not super complicated, but it does require like a really steady hand and a really still pet. We'll put them under sedation or anesthesia, and then we'll carefully enlarge the hole and try to take that larva out with forceps. So something that can be done super easily by the assistants and the technicians is if you can shave the pet beforehand, if they'll let you, if not, shave them when they're under sedation and then immediately clean it and put a sterile lube over the area or even triple antibiotic is fine, but something sterile. So that way it like blocks all that oxygen from coming into there and that way it'll want to come out because if you go to poke down in that larva, it's going to immediately want to retract back into the skin. So a way to help that is going to be to put that stuff over it so that way it's, has, it's going to you know, get rid of a lot of that oxygen. It does take like 10 to 15 minutes for them to like lose all of their oxygen, so you do have to be patient. Then afterwards, we want to clean the area as soon as we're able to get it out. We want to flush it with some sterile saline thoroughly because we want to fend off some of those secondary infections because there's a bunch of tissue that's at the bottom there that's all dead. That's what that bot fly is feeding on. So if you're wondering how is it feeding at the bottom of the hole, but it's breathing at the top of the hole, that's because the bottom of the hole is where its mouth is. That's where it's like actually eating things. And the top of the hole is basically where its butt is. So it breathes through its butt. So the reason why we have to be super careful about getting them out, you don't want to squeeze the skin or anything, especially when you're cleaning and stuff because you could rupture it. Or when we're trying to get them out, if you pull on it too hard and squeeze it, it'll rupture or it'll leave a piece of it behind. For ruptures that can actually cause the pet to go into anaphylaxis, if that happens, we immediately need to give them Benadryl and then also potentially steroids like DexSP. Um, otherwise, if the pet doesn't get an anaphylaxis, but there's still stuff that's left in there, it'll form an abscess later. And that just keeps getting formed over and over. It'll come in for an abscess, we'll treat it with antibiotics, it won't come out, but it'll go away. And then it forms again because it's just going to keep doing that until that little piece is gone. So how do we treat like the pets that have neurological signs. So this is a little bit hard. If we diagnose it with CT or MRI, it's a little bit easier on our mind to be able to treat it because we know that it's going to be the appropriate treatment. If we do know for sure that's what it is, and typically it means giving a Benadryl injection, waiting one or two hours, and then giving a dose of Ivermectin and DexSP. So Benadryl is going to help try to stop the reaction from occurring. The ivermectin is actually what's going to kill the cuterebra, and the DEXSP is going to decrease the inflammation because if we kill it, it's going to essentially explode or release a bunch of toxins, and then now it's going to cause a lot of inflammation, and if that's in the brain, that's not good, and then hopefully as soon as it dies, then the pet will hopefully be okay. So now your question might be like, why don't we just give this to all Pets who are having seizures, if there's a possibility that it could be cuterebra. For cats specifically, ivermectin is not approved for use in them. So that's a dangerous thing for us to do. So I will talk to the pet owner and be like, hey, if you can't afford to do a CT and we see that there's a cuterebra on the skin, or we know that there's a high likelihood that it could be a cuterebra infection, I will talk to them about trying this method of just giving Benadryl, ivermectin, and DexSP. As long as they know that the pet could have a severe anaphylaxis or it's not going to work. But if the other option is that we're just going to put the pet to sleep, then 
I feel like it's fair to try that, right? It's just communicating to the owners that this may not work. And if it does work, this might have long lasting effects still. All right. So let's talk about some of the commonly asked questions. One for the receptionists. A lot of people will call in and be like, I found this hole with this little bug that keeps going in and out. And I read that it could be a cuterebra. Can I take it out myself? So yes and no. Ideally, no, because we want them to bring their pet in so we can sedate them and we can take it out and make sure that we are less likely to have a chance of them having anaphylaxis. But there are some people who like cannot afford that and they're just going to start looking on YouTube and of people pulling these things out and they're going to try to do it. So instead, I would tell people that they can, if they cannot afford it, because this is going to take a lot of patience and a very steady hand to do this, is they can put Neosporin over the hole and then put a small tube on top of it. So think about, I explain it as like a shot glass, but even smaller, like thimble size. Like if they have something that small, because all that air is trapped in there. So if they try to use like a shot glass, there's still a lot of air that's in there and it's big, right? So it's really hard to be able to get a good seal over it. So something small like that. The, the goal is to try to make that cuterebra run out of oxygen. So if it runs out of oxygen, then it will pop out. So you want to put it over that hole and they're going to hold it there for a long time. Ideally, it's 15 minutes if everything goes well. But that means that they have a really small thing that they're using. They've put that neosporin over it. Ideally, it'll be 15 minutes, but it could be an hour or hours, depending on how big of a thing that they use. If they use a giant glass, the thing's never going to come out. If they use a shot glass, it might be hours. So if they use something really small, they need to be able to hold it there and not allow any air to come in, which means the pet has to sit there very still for that whole time. Now imagine if there are six cuterebra and you're sitting there for six hours trying to get these things to pop out. So it's not the ideal situation for them to do that. Ideally, we want them to bring them in. But if they have no other option, that is something that they can do. But they cannot use tweezers and grab them out because, again, they can cause an anaphylaxis. And if the pet is not in the hospital, that can be a really big deal. But afterwards, it does need to be cleaned out. So dilute iodine or betadine works really well. Tell them not to use peroxide or alcohol. That just kills off good cells as well as bad cells. So the next common question I get is going to be, is this contagious? So technically, no. Once the larva is already in the animal, it cannot be transmitted to another animal or person or anybody like that. It can happen by like newly hatched larva. So let's say maybe the dog got larva on its fur and another dog comes and cleans it, then it can be transferred that way because then the other dog cleaned it and then now it's going to migrate and go to the skin. So ideally like keeping them separate or giving that dog a bath just so that, that way you can prevent that licking of each other. All right. It's a lot on cuterebras, huh? So we're going to talk about prevention really quickly. So prevention, there's no medication that you can give to prevent it. There's no flea medication or anything that's like specifically for cuterebra, but some of the things that they can do are going to be like trying to keep their pets indoors during that prime time of like late summer and fall, or trying to make sure that they wash them really well every you know, week or so to make sure we get all that stuff off of them. So hopefully they don't lick it up. For medication wise, there are medications that have been found to possibly help. There's nothing approved, like FDA approved, to say this works on Kid Rebra. But 
there are medications that they feel have been helpful to either kill them or prevent them, like like that chemical that makes them not want to get on the, that pet's body. Some of those are things like fipronil, which is in Frontline, and metoclopramide, which is in Advantix. I think it's Advantix 2, if I remember correctly. Macrocytic lactones, which is in ivermectin. Like those things can possibly prevent the larva and also possibly kill the larva when they're migrating. So there are so many medications that have these in them, but as you all know, I do emergency. That's not my specialty. We're going to talk to Dr. Z in a couple of weeks, who's really good at parasitic prevention things. So this is one of the things I will be asking her so that I will know as well. So I'll also warn people too, if they're going to do that, make sure that they put a flea prevention on that's for that pet, right? To make sure it says for dogs and cats, that doesn't say for dogs only, or please do not use on cats. Make sure that they are very clear when knowing not to put these on a cat, because that can definitely cause some problems, some toxicities with cats. It's got to be specifically for cats. If there's for cats or for dogs, most of them are okay. For most dogs, there are some dogs that have problems, especially with ivermectin. Those are the herding type breeds. So we always say like white feet don't treat. You can ask the doctors more about that again. Dr. Z is going to know way more about those things. So I don't know which flea medications can and cannot go on a, a Sheltie or a Aussie or things like that. But in general, most of the time, we want to just make sure it's okay for that specific pet. All right. So that was my take on Cuterebra. Hopefully you guys learned something from them because I've had a lot of people who have seen quite a few of them now and have seen us like having to take them out. So hopefully that answers some of your guys' questions. As for my story for today, I forgot to come up with one. So let me think. Oh, here, I'll tell you about an insect story. So I used to, when I was a technician, one of my doctors, she would see pretty much anything, like any type of animal. One day there was this lady who brought in a deer that got caught in her fence and it had like just some very superficial wounds, but nothing really bad. And then she wanted the doctor to do x-rays. Of course, the doctor wasn't doing the x-rays. The technician is doing the x-rays. The doctor, she said, sure, not a problem. We'll do the x-rays. So we go to take these x-rays on this deer that's huge. And we go to flip it over. And it's not a sedated or anything, right? We go to flip it over. And I just see the whole entire chest, like chest and neck here, just all ticks, like thousands of ticks on it. I And so I like had to just hold the front of the steer waiting. And I, there's just ticks all over its head right next to my head. And we take the x-rays and we immediately get it down. And I immediately went into the bathroom and it was just like checking all over because I was, I was convinced I was going to have a tick on me. It seemed like everything was okay. So I, we finished up for the day, went home. And then when I got home, I found five ticks like on my shirt and on my back. And I think there was one like behind, not behind my ear. Where was it? It was like the back of my head. There's, I'm not usually very squeamish from a lot of things, but when you suddenly find all of these ticks all over you and see all of these ticks all over that deer, I was definitely squeamish that day. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Like I said, hopefully you learned some stuff about it. And then if you have any questions, let me know. Otherwise, I have a couple of people who are going to be coming on. I have Dr. Z who's going to come on. She's going to do some parasite stuff for us. And then also some Cushing's and Addison's disease from a GP standpoint. 
And then I also have Dr. Watson, who's going to be coming. She's the lady who does necropsies for us. She's going to be coming on so that she can talk about uh, necropsies and like what you can find on a necropsy, what you can't find, what she does, things like that. And then I'm also going to be having Dr. Wilsius on so she can talk about um, acupuncture as well. All right. So like I said, if you ever have any questions, find me, come grab me. I'm happy to answer them. If you have topics you want me to do, let me know. As you can see, I have other people who can come on as well. So I'm happy to do those topics with anybody you want. If you have questions about internal medicine, I'll find an internist. If you have questions for ophthalmologists, I'll find an ophthalmologist. I'm hoping that maybe I can get Dr. Fielder to do some dentistry stuff for us as well. But yeah, I'm happy to find anybody we need to answer our questions. All right. Thanks, guys.